Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Lawcast. This time, we're going back to cover the Flair versus Funk I Quit match. It's Clash of the Champions, New York Knockout. It's the epic finale to 1989 Steve's version. But first, I guess we've got some interesting current wrestling stories to talk about this week. Uh, did you watch the pay-per-view Survivor Series? I sure, I sure did. I watched it after the fact because I was like, I am not watching this garbage if Orton and Punk don't show up on it. So I was like, all right, now that I know from Twitter that everything's exploded, <laughs> that I'll check it out. your phone just exploded when CM Punk came out? Yeah. I, you sent me at one message, and then I looked on there, and I had like 14 notifications. I was like, I guess he showed up then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, CM Punk has returned to WWE. It actually happened. The thing we both predicted would happen, and then wouldn't, and then would, and then wouldn't. Kept going back and forth on this one. All the signs were there. It, like When Nakamura hit the GTS, I think we both said, like, oh, yeah, they've got a deal done with him. And I think they did. I think this cover story that they didn't talk to him until the week of the show is bullshit. That's just them covering for the fact that they lied to every like the media and all their employees about it. Here's the thing. There's a lot of times that they've tried to work the, the dirt sheets. There's a lot of times that they've tried to work the boys. I don't think enough is being made of the fact that this is, it's very rare for them to go outright and just straight lie to everyone's yeah. faces that no, this definitely is not happening. You're all idiots. How dare you even suggest it? Especially when the easy out here would have just been, you can just keep repeating. He's not under contract. It's a non-denial denial. We haven't signed him. He's not under contract because he did. I'm sure he didn't sign his contract until the day of the show. But they, I think they worked the deal out, you know, in September or whenever. Right. Like again, when Nakamura hit <laughs> the GTS, and every week they were dropping hints. I think he was back, and then they cooled it down because they wanted it to be a bigger surprise. And the funny thing is, it's not even clear whether or not the Nakamura thing was leading to Punk at all. But they're just no, they, I don't they think drop it was. little teases, yeah. Yeah, I think the Nakamura promos were always about Cody. Yeah, which makes perfect sense, and that's totally fine. But like, it's almost funny that they they were so vehement about it that like it's almost like it's a good thing that the the Twitter sphere is what it is because the hype continued on because no one believed yeah. him in the first place anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I remember saying when we were talking about it, like, man, wouldn't CM Punk love to humiliate the wrestling media? Wouldn't he love to make a fool of Brian Alvarez and Dave Meltzer and everybody else who he feels like has wronged him over the years? And it's exactly what he did here. That was probably on his side of the arrangement. Like, I'll sign, but you got to lie to Dave Meltzer's face for me. Yeah, so... You know, it's one of those deals where they like, I don't think he got there until, you know, an hour, 30 minutes before, probably an hour before he showed up. He was like sitting out in a car in the parking lot. And then they reportedly they told the wrestlers in the War Games match right before they went out that Punk's back. He's going to be showing up at the end of the match. So all the reactions we saw from the guys were works like the Seth Rollins thing was a work. The Drew McIntyre thing was a work. It's part of the storyline. They may but actually be mad. They may actually be mad that he's back. I wouldn't blame any of them if they're mad, but they were all acting mad as part of the show. 
My favorite clip from any of that was the clip of Randy Orton sitting on a chair in the yes. ring waving at Punk and Punk waves back. <laughs> Punk and Again, Randy buddy. Orton being cool is very <laughs> random and funny. I mean, they're both two people who have been absolutely vilified for the majority yeah. of their careers. I bet you they do get along, even if on like a superficial level, like, oh, I see you. You're also a scumbag who everyone hates. I can believe they both respect each other, and I don't think they've ever had like issues with each other. I mean, Punk got along fine with Cena. He actually, t- off the top of my head, I'm trying to, the people I had beefs with in WWE were just like Ryback and Roman and like, I think him and Batista had an issue at some point. Just like big dudes who threw him around and he didn't appreciate it. And who he didn't think were, you know, good enough wrestlers and didn't jerk it off to New Japan matches or whatever. I do love the idea that, like, he and Cena's friendship seem kind of random. But if you, like, think about the fact that they were both just sitting in the back watching Inoki matches together, I guess that does make more sense. Um, Punk's promo on Raw, surprisingly short and flat, and I thought in some ways kind of depressing to watch this guy just, it was so phony for him to say this feels like home. It's, it's not home. It's, this is a place that's been horribly toxic for him in the past that he trashed for a decade. And, like, for him to be like, you guys just kept chanting my name, so I had to come back, that, it's pretty I'm, rich considering this is not where he came back to first. No, but I'm I'm fine with that. I'm fine with him right. thanking the fans and saying yeah, it is kind of cool. It's got to be kind of cool for him on some level that 10 years on, people would still chant his name at shows. Yeah. The I'm Home thing was kind of sad. The fact that it only got five minutes was weird. Yeah. Um, I was kind of expecting it to, like, transition into a story or something. It didn't. It was like a standalone deal. I don't really mm. know. He alluded I, to Roman, you know, Paul Heyman and Roman Reigns. He alluded to Seth Rollins, I think, when he talked about there being, you know, insecure imitators out there. He's got, he's there's no shortage of people for him to work with. Like, he's got a solid year's worth of opponents in this company. Well, yeah, I realized that when he, I saw him like waving to Randy and I was like, he has very few former coworkers left in this company. Like there's people who were here when he was here, but they weren't on top when he was on top. No, I mean, you think about it. Most of the guys who are on top now were kids when he was there. Like, you know, yeah. Roman, Seth, Cody, Jey Uso, like those he guys were all Roman and Seth others. in like they, yeah. the shield was debuted for him. Yeah, that was one of his, you know, that was his last program was he was working with the Shield and he had to make Roman look strong. I mean, honestly, like even guys like Miz were in the mid card when he was on top. Like now yeah. those are like about to retire veterans. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. think about his like his big rivals were Cena, Rock, Jericho. Who else do you have big programs with? Ryback, Jeff Hardy, uh, yeah. <laughs> Undertaker. Yeah, vast majority of these people are retired or semi-retired or not in the company anymore. There's a lot of guys that I just want to see him like turn around in a backstage segment and go huh. face-to-face with. Whenever they do that with Cena, it's going to get a, gr- a special reaction. Oh, that's like Rock and Austin. Right yeah. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, him and Cody is fascinating because their paths really never crossed when they were in AEW. This is the baffling thing is that, yeah, thinking what I've always wondered what Cody thought about that whole thing. But now I really wonder when Cody was standing there in the war games, his special match that he had always wanted, yeah. that he finally got. And he's looking out there at CM Punk. What is he thinking? 
Is he like, that's the guy who fucked over my old friends? Yeah. Is he thinking like, oh. Or is he like, lol, he fucked over my old friends who I don't like anymore? Because we don't know. We don't know what Cody thinks about any of that shit. Oh, he won't talk about any of it. And like, mostly, I don't think that we, that Cody fell out with Kenny and the Bucks so much as he fell out with Tony Khan, specifically on like creative differences. But we don't know. We don't know how he feels. And if anything, I think him and Punk probably see eye to eye creatively more than he did with Tony and the rest of the guys. Oh, yeah. They're both Jim Crockett guys. Like, I'm sure that they would have a good time with that. And here's the thing. Punk with Triple H as the booker is really the situation Punk's needed his whole fucking career. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I don't think this I'll go on record. I don't think this is going to last long. I bet within a year, I bet he's fired, quit, or maybe most likely just suffers a serious injury because his body just isn't up to taking the pounding anymore. I also will go on record as saying if this had happened a year ago, it would have been much bigger. If only because like if he had gotten fired after the brawl out thing. Um, if only because like him and Roman could have had like a really big WrestleMania match, but now that WrestleMania match is locked in, baby. Like they're not changing oh, so- that shit. Sorry, brother. That's a nice story you got there. Be a shame if somebody else finished it. Yeah. If this really was the Hulkster, the Hulkster would smile in Cody's face and take his spot without thinking about it. But like now there are rumors that they want Roman to beat Hogan's title reign, which would require him to hold the belt into the fall. So maybe he could beat Punk at WrestleMania and then Cody beats him. I don't know, in Saudi Arabia or something in the fall. That's if they do that shit in Saudi Arabia, <laughs> I swear to God, Steve. Oh, I, th- I think it, I, th- I think Cody will beat Roman at WrestleMania, and I think it'll be Punk and Seth. And I Stand, assume Seth right. wins that and retains. Cause, but although if Cody's going to be a full-time champion, Punk could be a part-time champion. And right. you could probably Bill do you Bill do a unification match between them. And then after Seth, there's just like a sea of guys that he could face. Like there's like you said, there's so many young guys. Fucking like Roman, Cody, Gunther. Gunther versus Punk is fascinating to me because I feel like this young. I mean, he's not young, but like this younger like monster. You feel like he would destroy Punk. Like he would put him out like Rocky Fourth. Yeah. Um. Got Punk and LA Knight interacting. Sounds awesome. There's just a lot of guys. Listen, we're in a boom period for WWE. Suddenly they have a shitload of new stars who haven't worked with any of these older guys. So like even like the like Orton who's getting glossed over, even yeah. though he's been gone for two years, the entire he's boom period hot. missed. Here's the thing, yeah, him versus half these guys he's never this... worked with. Let's go. The pops he got this week are the biggest ones I've ever seen him get. Yes. And again, he's finally, I think, ready to be a baby face. I honestly yeah. think like it's not still not the best thing for him, but I genuinely think that he's like ready to be a legend baby face style character. So can segue into Survivor Series reaction. Thought it was a very good show. I loved both the War Games matches and Gunther versus Miz. Loved that the show was under three hours. That was refreshing. I gotta say, yeah. Like, those are the only three matches I wanted to see. Everything else is pretty forgettable. But, like, all three of those delivered exactly what I wanted. 
Um, God knows I wish that we could have some blood in a War Games match, yeah. but they can't do that. I understand. Um, but yeah, they were all great. The surprise at Punk at the end was delivered perfectly, like just making people wait, putting up the little logo on the bottom, yeah. making people think it was over before delivering it. Absolutely flawless, no notes, chef's kiss. I almost turned the show off. I was so close to reaching for the remote because that ending was just dragging on and on. And then when they, when they went to that wide shot, I was like, wait a minute. This is yeah, the return yep. shot. This is the return shot when they're showing the whole crowd like that. Oh, man, just great yeah. stuff. <clears throat> As usual, I don't know that I would say that like any of the pay-per-views this year have been like incredible. There hasn't been like an iconic show, I think. And yet, no. in like Triple H's term as Booker, he just doesn't deliver bad shows, which is yeah. fine. That's the same way, you know, same way I felt about Raw. It was workmanlike, and they advanced all their storylines, but there was nothing great on it. Yeah, there's temptation when you have like Punk and Orton coming back to be like, oh, let's put our best shit out there to try to snatch some new fans. The patient showed in just being like, no, it's just yeah. another show. Like there are no new fans out there to snatch. It's the same motherfuckers. No, we just and we and we don't need to rush into having somebody attack Punk and beat him up. That can be next week's story. Yeah, we're trying to get to April. Yeah, like so we can just take our fucking time, man. I mean, they don't have a just and they don't have a December pay per view. They they've got like an eight week, eight or nine week build to the Royal Rumble here, so they kind of got to take their time. And this is the thing, like, I know that they're already starting in on Punk Rollins, but that seems too fucking early for WrestleMania. Maybe that is the Rumble. I don't I think know. That, I think that's going to be WrestleMania. I think Punk is going to be in the Rumble. And so Seth, Seth will face somebody else. Um, shit, who's Seth going to... I mean, you think about the roster. Who is there for Seth to wrestle, though? He already beat Drew. He already beat Finn. Um, he's not going to wrestle Cody. Damian Priest still has money in the Priest bank. Priest has got to cash not... that thing in at some point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. All the stars are on SmackDown. Um, um, Jay Uso getting a single shot is pretty much that's that would be like the Royal Rumble spot, I think. Jay is wrestling him next week, but I think that's just so that Drew can get really mad and interrupt the match. And that's the thing, like Drew versus Jay seems like the match at Royal Rumble. So I don't know. You could do Seth versus Drew versus Jay, maybe. Maybe something like that. I don't know. There are options, but yeah, yeah Raw's a little thin on top. It's real. It's really like deep in the middle, and all the big stars are on SmackDown. It seems like. Yeah, I was thinking maybe it would be Randy and Seth at the Rumble, but I think it looks like Randy's going to go to SmackDown and go after Roman. Or maybe he's going to be in the Royal Rumble saying he wants a shot at Roman, and the only way to get it is to win the Royal Rumble. I'm genuinely thinking about this, and I've been thinking about it for a bit. I think this might be the most loaded Rumble since, like, 2001. Man, it is going to be stacked when you think about it. Because we all know Cody's going to win. But if it came down to like Randy, Cody, and Punk in the final three, I don't know how sure I would be about that. Here's what I would do. Cody in first, Gunther in last. Comes down to Cody and Gunther again. Yeah. And it's the reverse of last time. And they should go like 20. Do like the Punk Michaels. Give us a whole match. All right, let's move on to the AEW Continental Classic. Yeah. Um, 
We've got two blocks. The Blue League has Andrade, Danielson, Eddie Kingston, Brody King, Claudio Castagnoli, and Daniel Garcia. The Gold League has Jay Briscoe, John Moxley, Swerve Strickland, Roosh, Jay Lethal, and Switchblade Jay White. My understanding is there's no semifinals. It's just the two block winners facing off at World's End. I guess that makes sense since it's a round-robin tournament and everybody will have faced everybody already. Yeah, and that does make sense. I will say, I am so happy that this concept has made it to America, that they were doing a G1 here. I'm so thrilled about it. The matches are going to be incredible. We've already seen one. Like I'm really hyped for this entire fucking tournament. Um, these matches are going to be fucking lights out great across yeah. the board. It's going to make like a lot of character development, build a lot oh, of stories. And there's, a, there's rules, 20 minute time limit. No one allowed at ringside, no interference allowed. Just straight up fucking wrestling, baby. Which why don't all the mat? Why don't all the matches work that way? It's a great question. Actually. <laughs> um, I, I think it's pretty obvious that Danielson is winning that shit or a heel is going to beat him in the finals to like get some heat on him or something like that. But this is Danielson's tournament. It's built in his image. It's for him. Yeah, I think it's Danielson, Jay White in the finals. I would have Jay win because I think he needs something big. Now, here's the fascinating thing about Jay winning. And I was freaking out on Twitter about this once I realized the prize for this is the Ring of Honor Triple world Crown. title. Uh, Yeah, the Triple Crown, including the New Japan Strong title, which means this is now a belt that you can defend in New Japan. Jay White was effectively banned from New Japan and from and from wrestling in the country of Japan at all, unless he gets permission from Eddie Kingston, which is hilarious. (laughs) But if he wins this, he will functionally be back. This is our ticket to Bullet Club versus Bullet Club. Since Eddie's two belts are on the line, do you feel like he has to be in the finals? See, I would love it if he was. Um, I don't think that he has to to get character progression, though. Like, I think that it still makes sense if he, if he can make it like up there, like like he can be in second place, and I think that that's still okay. This could be like I don't want him to turn heel, but like this would be a good reason for him to turn heel and like do some shit. All I want from a G1 style thing is for everyone to have more direction coming out than they had yes. going in. And I think that they will. I think that they're going to handle that just fine. I do think that the rosters are a little haphazard, but not bad. I mean, they had they did a good job, I think. The temptation would be just to put all the top guys in there, but I think they did a good job mixing in guys who can take guys who are going to take losses without it being all screw jobs. Yeah, for my New Japan fans out there, you got to have a Yoshihashi in there. Like somebody's got to lose seven matches in this thing. And that just is what it is because somebody's got to lose and it's not going to be Swerve Strickland taking five losses because you got to keep people hot. I think Mark Briscoe is the guy who's going to come. It's like he's going to be come down to his last match and he's going to have no wins and he's finally going to get a win would be my pick. Yeah, that like there's so many ways of getting people over in these tournaments like you do that and it's a huge win, but he'll get like a win over like Jay White and that's going to be enormous. And then if Jay White yeah. gets the title, he'll get a title shot. And is um, there a, is there a shocking upset you would call here? Ooh, that's interesting. Like what would Daniel, shock Gar- Daniel Garcia beating almost anybody in his block is something that I think will definitely happen. Like him beating like is he in there with Danielson? Yeah. 
I feel like that would happen. I mean, he beat. Am I remembering this right? Didn't he beat Danielson like last year yes. by submission? He got him Danielson in the Dragon tried to Slayer get him in whatever. The, yeah. yeah. Danielson tried to get him in the Blackpool Combat Club, and he said no. They should have done that at the time, by the way, because Garcia was over like shit. Yeah. That kind of killed him. But like, and I could definitely lost see momentum that. like everyone when <clears> he <throat> seems to. Yeah. So like that would make total sense. Absolutely. Mark Briscoe getting a shock victory. The other thing that New Japan does in the G1 is that if you beat someone who in the tournament holds a title or later Your happens shot. to hold a title, you get an automatic shot Makes at sense. that title. Yeah. yeah. So if Mark Briscoe beats Jay White and Jay White wins this triple crown, the first contender is Mark Briscoe. What are the two match? What's the match from each block you are most looking forward to seeing? I'd say for me, it's. Danielson versus Claudio and probably Swerve versus Jay White. Swerve versus Jay. Swerve versus everybody in this is fascinating yeah. to me because he had his star making performance. Yeah. He doesn't need to win this thing, but he does need to look good in it. Yeah. So like every match he does, like I have under a microscope because I'm like, are you going to make the next step? Are you going to make the next step? Can you do it? <sighs> All right, we'll surely have more updates on this. We're recording this Tuesday night, so we you know, have not seen Dynamite on Wednesday yet. But boy, do I feel like this company needs a big night on Wednesday night. Also, quick thing, QT Marshall just quit the company. Yeah. And he said it's because it's becoming too much like New Japan, which farting noise, get the fuck out of here. I think it's becoming too much like WWE. I don't really That's see how they argue it's become too much like New Japan, other than they're doing a round-robin tournament like New Japan does. I'm sorry that they're not doing your dumb TMZ segments, you smuck. Get the fuck out of here. All right. Let's get in the Wayback Machine. Go back to November of 1989 for Clash of the Champions, the New York Knockout. We're coming off Halloween Havoc, where Ric Flair and Sting beat Terry Funk and Muda in the Thunder Cage match. Um, there was controversy as Gary Hart didn't actually mean to throw the towel in for his team. So we're going to have Flair against Funk in an I Quit match to settle the score between them once and for all. Can't even tell you if the title was on the line here. It was a little unclear to me. I think according to Wikipedia, it wasn't yeah. question mark, but I don't Sounds really right, know. but I feel like the promos were a little inconsistent about it. And why wouldn't the title have been on the line? Like, what's the point in not doing it? No idea. Terry Funk is a ranked contender. He has made it into the top ten at this point. And it's not like you Terry Funk's going to win clean, so, like, who gives a shit? Uh, Funk... We'll have to retire if he loses. I've heard it claimed he didn't actually agree to that stipulation and that Hurd surprised him with it because he thought he was too old. Which is insane as he's having such a great run here. Yeah, that's the thing. Coming off of this unbelievable run to be like, all right, and you're going to retire at the end because you're old and you suck, right? And him being like, wait, what? You just thought I was going to be cool with that? Business seemed to be picking up. Both main event and world championship wrestling posted their highest ratings of the year. Um, World championship wrestling had bottomed out with a 1.9 rating in the summer. Here they were up to a 2.9. I don't know how much of that is seasonal. I would have to look at what the variation was. It would make sense if their ratings just got stronger in the fall because more people watch TV in the fall than they do in the summer. 
Yeah, that's true. When we were uh, at the house show or at Raw, we were actually talking about this because it's so funny how wrestling has changed over these years. Because in the summer, people would actually go out and do things and be yeah. outside and have do sports or whatever. And they would watch TV in the fall when it got cold. That does not apply anymore because no one leaves their house ever for any reason. <laughs> and now for, for so long now, since WWE's flagship show has been on Monday their ratings always go down in the fall when they're up against Monday Night Football. And AEW Collision has really struggled this fall up against uh, Saturday Night College Football games and a couple times WWE pay-per-views on Saturdays. Yep. Um, Live attendance remains a weakness, but I would attribute a lot of that to just running shows in places they had no business being in, such as running this show up in New York where they have no marketing, weak TV, no relationships with local promoters, and they're in a building up outside Albany because I'm sure they couldn't find one in New York City. Also, but the funny thing about that is when I saw it was in Troy, New York, I was like, this is going to be a disaster. This crowd is liquid hot, like nothing else that we have seen so far this year. Yeah, it's absolutely rabid. I mean, I guess the one thing you can say about New York is – relatively high percentage of people with cable i would guess in the northeast you know relatively high number of homes wired for cable and relatively affluent so a lot more people with cable than other places so they had the ability to watch wcw and if they were running the show up there they must have had syndicated tv up there they'd have been crazy to try to run up there if they didn't have tv and to be clear like the first time you go to a place is always the best you're going to get out of that place if they know you. And like nobody from Troy, New York has ever been able to go to a WCW show before. That's for fucking sure. Well, let me check. The bunkhouse stampede was in New York in 1988, but I think it might've been, it was at the Nassau Coliseum. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Man, they got into the, they, they could get into the Nassau Coliseum. I guess that building's a little big. I can understand not wanting to run that for TV here. Yeah. Um, Big story out of the North was the WWF firing Tully Blanchard. Um, Him and Arn Anderson had given their notice that they were leaving because they were unhappy with money. And then before they could leave, the WWF fired Blanchard for failing a drug test, which ruined his career. Yep. Is it weird that he never got a shot back here? I know that Jim Hurd was super big against the drug, the failed drug test. So like, that's why he didn't come back in. But, like, Bill Watts didn't want him. Like, Eric yeah, Bischoff didn't want him. Yeah, I don't know him. if like, he was just too old by, like, 93. But he was still wrestling. He was wrestling, I think, in ECW at that point. Yeah. He wrestled well into the 90s. He just couldn't get signed anywhere. It's just weird. Yeah. No, like, not even Flair had the stroke to get his buddy in. Maybe Flair was glad to be gone with him, too. Uh, I don't know. That's the the thing you have to factor in with Tully Blanchard. Legendary dickhead. Like, one yes. of the most hated men behind the scenes in pro wrestling. Sadly, yes. Um, so, yeah, Blanchard and Anderson were supposed to come back to the NWA. But because Blanchard failed the drug test, Hurd wouldn't rehire him. They do bring back Arn Anderson, at a much reduced rate, like they reduced his offer by something like 50 grand, I think he said, because they didn't have Tully too, which is some bullshit. That's fucked up. It's not like you're Bobby Eaton and you're in the Midnight Express. Arn Anderson has been his own guy. Yeah. Woof. All right. 
before we get to the show, one last 1989 lightning round. Yeah. Oh, Fuck yeah. Jim Hurd acknowledged in an interview that the Terry Funk plastic bag and Scott Steiner's street beating angles had been too violent for TV. I mean, yeah, probably, I guess. Meltzer said for the first time ever, a wrestler called him to complain that his match had gotten too high of a star rating and they didn't deserve it. Who do you think did that self-loathing shit? That sounds unbelievable. I know. But I feel like that's like Flair being like, yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> Flair being probably that cage, that thunder cage match that got four stars. That feels too high. Yeah, because it's just like, I just made art with Steamboat, and you're giving that bullshit four stars? No, settle down. There should be a bigger gulf between those two matches. Speaking of which, I hate to get into Meltzer star rating discourse, but how about him saying he didn't like the Swerve versus Moxley match and still giving it five stars? It's one of the funniest things I've ever heard him do, being like, this match sucks. Five stars. You're allowed to just not like, like back in the day, he would just bury ultra violent matches because he thought they were bad. And I at least respect that. But here it's so clear he just didn't want people to get mad at him for giving it a low rating. Like there's so much politics behind the star ratings. I can't believe he's even continued doing this into this point where he so he so clearly gives so much less of a shit about what star rating these matches get it doesn't mean to him what it used to mean it's a stupid thing to care about it doesn't matter anymore because people can actually like it mattered in the tape trading days because people needed to know what tapes to trade for yeah you actually because he would be the only one who knew whether a match was good or not and you needed to know now we all fucking know why are you waiting for this? It's not necessary. And he knows it. He doesn't care. Yeah. For the record, I thought that match was incredible. You know what match I hated that everybody loved? John Moxley versus Kenny Omega from the first AEW pay-per-view. That match fucking sucked. I thought that the general sense was that that match did suck. Good. I hated it. Yeah, that so was not a good match. Though, when they had their next death match years later, that match kicked ass. So I'm glad yeah, that they until, managed to come around. Until the uh, exploding ring that fizzled. Listen, I don't fucking like death matches. <laughs> this one was rad, though. Ricky Steamboat returned to the ring for a match with an independent promotion in Peru, Indiana. Peru, Indiana? That sounds like a made-up town they would claim Sabu was from. Like, I bet like, you there's only two. Michigan. I bet you there's only two things ever that have happened in Peru, Indiana, and one is this match, and the second involves the Klan. Like, this is not good for you, Ricky. WCW president Jason Petrik was was promoted to the TBS board of directors. Good for Jason. Good for you, buddy. I have no idea anything about you, but good for you. New Japan announced they would be holding a show in Russia on New Year's Eve. Inoki, just loving this relationship with the Russians. Got, got to get more Zangiev. There's nothing, nowhere this man couldn't go. There's yeah. no time he couldn't go there, and there's no show he couldn't put on. It occurs to me now that the reason that those Russians were on that Starcade was because Hurd read The Observer and he read how much Inoki was drawing with these Russians and thought yes. he could do the same thing. 
That's why all of these Japanese guys start coming in, I feel like. I honestly think her just read The Observer and was like, oh, look at these. New Japan's drawing all this money. We got to get some of that shit in here. New Japan was drawing more money at their gates than WCW was making on their pay-per-views. And that continued on until at least 95. Jorge Gonzalez was signed to an NWA contract after being unable to make the Atlanta Hawks. That's El Gigante, Giant Gonzalez. How is it that this is the only time that Ted Turner having basically a monopoly on all the Atlanta sports yeah. teams won't work out for them? It's this and Goldberg are both examples of like them being Atlanta athletes, but they're two like coups. You couldn't get anybody else? What Atlanta athlete would you have wanted to see wrestle? Dion fucking Sanders. Oh, that is the ultimate, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Without hesitation. New Japan reportedly attempted to book a Night of Champions show that would have featured the IWGP, NWA, AWA, and WWF champions. Let's do Stump Cute. Can you name who these champions were at the time? So what, This would have been right now? Yeah. All right. So in 89, uh, this is Hogan again, right? Yep. Hogan's got the WWF title. That's the only one they couldn't get. Right. Uh, AWA would have been Zabisco. Yep. Okay. And uh, IWGP, this is tough because it was passing around. Uh, is that Fujinami? I can't, I actually don't know this. I think it might have been Vader at this point. Yeah. It was Vader, Choshu, and Fujinami were trading it a bunch during yeah. that period. So I'm not sure which one it is. But they, they should have just done the show. They were never going to get fucking Hogan over there holding the belt, wrestling Larry Zabisco. <laughs> that would have ruled. <laughs> the booking committee was rumored to be adding Jim Ross, Terry Funk, and Jim Barnett. That's been the problem. Not enough bookers. Add some more dudes in there. <laughs> Pick Luger's brain. Why not? Why not get a woman in the booth? Come on. Yeah, who wasn't on this fucking thing by this point? Jesus Christ. I was four years old, so I had to say, why not? Fuck it. Let me write in. Um, a UWF show at the Tokyo Dome sold 40,000 tickets the day they went on sale. Bro, this is the moment where yeah. shoot-style wrestling exploded bloated in yes. japan and this is such a story for another time i'm only half joking about 1989 ryan's version because for real like there's what's going rad, on in japan, there's rad stuff going on over there revolutionary mma is basically invented as a concept during this period what is they don't have, they don't get vader till 93 like what is the big match that they sold out the dome for was it takata versus what akira maeda Jeremiah was the one who founded it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was the one who founded the promotion, and then Takata was the hot one coming up. I don't even know if they're having that match. Literally, it's just that the promotion itself became so exciting overnight to people. Yeah, like, just red like hot. Because they've been running like 2,000 people house shows, and then suddenly 40,000 without breaking a sweat. That's how hot it got overnight. And then a year later, it's gone. Well, was it because people thought it was real at first, and then as it became clear it was actually worked, their interest fizzled? The downside, the downfall for them was when they started putting clearly worked matches and clearly real matches on the same card. It was the mystery of was it real or not that I think drew a lot of people in. Because it is, I mean, if you watch it, 
it's not real, but it's very realistic. It's much yeah. more realistic than most. I'd say it's just about the only truly realistic pro wrestling I've ever seen. It's the way it's so much easier to suspend your disbelief. Yeah. But the mistake they made is they would put on like two big dudes clubbing each other fake as shit and then a real actual shoot fight. And both of those look terrible. And neither one is this. It's the melding of the two. That was the magic. That's what I'm so interested in is if I did this today, I would just be like, oh, no, it's all entertainment. It's all no, no, not real. But I would make it look really realistic and then occasionally you could have a fight that kind of just felt like it got out of hand and turned real. And I think yeah. you can fuck with people just enough. Just every once in a while you would need like somebody who wasn't supposed to win, like chokes the shit out of the yeah. other guy. And you're like, whoa, that looked real as fuck. That shouldn't have happened. Yeah. Did he go into like, business for himself or like, oh, it looked like that guy potatoed that guy. Now it looks like they're hitting each other for real all of a sudden. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the UFI thing like kind of pollutes New Japan for the next 10 years yeah. because they did try angles like that in New Japan after that. And they were all horrifying, terrible ideas. I mean, the other thing is like Inoki's getting so, he's doing so much business with like these Russians and these kickboxers that, yeah, that just becomes the whole promotion. And he starts making his wrestlers do real fights, I think, was the yes. real downfall. Have the them all get their asses beat. As the 90s go on, Anoki keeps wanting to do this sort of UFI stuff, but that's fallen out of favor by like yeah. 94. And the people want sports entertainment again. And like he doesn't want to give it to them. He gives it to them very much against his will. And finally, the hammer. Dusty Rhodes was found liable for writing an unsafe script in a lawsuit from a former wrestler who broke his ankle falling out of the ring in a spot he said Dusty asked him to do. The jury tried to award the plaintiff $300,000, but the judge set their decision aside. Thankfully, I'd say. Writing an unsafe script. That's incredible. Yeah, because he asked him to take this bump out of the ring. The judge, I think, was just like, but you agreed to do it. You admit yeah. you agreed to it. Like, sorry, man. You don't have to do what's in the script. Buddy. Um, that's not how it works. Yeah, they also... You know, like in absentia awarded him a bunch of money from whoever he was wrestling, but nobody had any idea where the guy was at this point. They couldn't find <laughs> him. He might have been dead. Like it was a match from like 83. He probably just had moved on to a different territory and he had been working under a gimmick name so they couldn't find him. That's the funniest shit. It's like, sorry, it was Super Destroyer, so we don't know who that is. <laughs> can't, can't reveal who was under the hood. No, no Dusty, sorry. Dusty did eventually expose the business on the stand. He tried it first to get around it, but he eventually had to admit, you know, wrestling is predetermined. It's cooperative. But then he shit on the guy like who was doing the lawsuit saying that he was a much better wrestler and more charismatic than that guy ever was. Hell yeah. What can That's go so in on him, Dusty? Go for it. All right, to get into the show, it's Wednesday, November the 15th, 1989. We're at the Houston Fieldhouse in Troy, New York, right outside of Albany. Um, about 4,000 people in attendance, which isn't full, but it does look like this looks pretty good. They light it properly and shoot it the right way. This is, 
and I've been continually saying throughout the course of all of these shows that like the production value is so unbelievably amazing. I think this might actually be the best looking show, television product that they've ever put on. This looks, this looks way better than Nitro ever did. And they got the big set. I love this. Yeah, like the huge set with like the lighting rig right behind him. So it's like shining these colored lights on him as they walk out into the mist. There's like this big stairway they walk down and it's all lit up. So they look like larger than life standing on top of a mountain when they're walking out. Like this is just a great look. The show does a bonanza 4.9 rating. Highest Whoa. for any cl- any clash in 1989. I think the third highest of all time behind the original clash and then the second one. 7.8 share in 2.5 million homes. That's the good shit. Flair versus Funk. Most watched match per minute in American cable television history to this point. Edged out Flair versus Sting because it was so much shorter. Holy shit. Yeah, people were into this. They had to see this showdown between Flair and Funk. Really, that should have main evented Starcade. I think they made a mistake doing that on TV. Steve, I'm so glad you just said that because I went back and I listened to our Starcade show because <laughs> I was kind of curious because yeah. I didn't really remember how that show went. And like they're so hot coming in and out of this show that I'm like, God, what was that Starcade like? Terrible. And I'm fucking mad after watching all of these amazing shows, having to go back and find out what they choose to do for Starcade is like a fucking slap in the face. There are. It's just like there's such an obvious Starcade card with Flair versus Funk, Luger versus Pillman, Sting versus Muda. Like, take your pick in the tag division, you know, Road Warriors versus Skyscrapers, Steiners versus Midnight Express, whatever you want. You've got great tag teams, and that's a hell of a Starcade. Yeah, you're building Steiners versus Doom. You're building Midnights versus Dynamic Dudes. That's all fine. Freebirds versus somebody, who cares? Steve Williams versus somebody, great. Like, that's, and it might have been genuinely the greatest Starcade of all time if they put that show on. Would have would have been and, the best one in years since like '85. Since and everyone would have had so much momentum coming out of it. Like, holy shit! Instead, they do that limp dick tournament where everybody beats oh. everybody. Everybody looks like ass coming out of that tournament. They kill Doom and Muda, which, of course, yeah. Muda's leaving. But, like, because coming out of this show, you would have to think this is a company on the rise. They figured it out. The booking is phenomenal. Everything's great. They got all these young stars coming up. And coming out of Starcade, this company is dead. You know who they give the book to? Who? Ole Anderson. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. Despite somehow, despite all Flair of these different books, massively improved the TV ratings. Which yes. they still need to work on the live attendance. To be fair, they're not doing great getting people in the stands. But it's a TV company, and they've massively boosted the ratings. TBS has got to be happy with the numbers they're producing. And then heard fucks with Flair to the point where Flair quits. This is the fascinating thing. We've talked about all these bookers, the dozens of bookers and booking team changes and shifts and how many people are in it. But the truth is, this might be the best year of booking of this company's history. I can't think of when that's ever been 
every single show we do, it's like, well, here's all of these booking committee changes and Heard was fucking them, but also here's this unbelievable yeah. show that looks great. <laughs> and yeah, with, you know, it sounds like it was really Sullivan and Cornette doing running things at this point, and they're doing a great job. These shows are great. Yeah. It's just... <sighs> And top to bottom, too. Suddenly, the undercard isn't just full of, like, old dudes doing squash matches. It's full of exciting young people and tag matches. We open with comments from Funk and Flair, both of whom say they're pr- it's their pride that's on the line tonight, and that's more important than any title belt. Of course, the title could just be on the line, but whatever. <laughs> and then we open with the Freebirds against the Road Warriors. Uh, the Freebirds have lost the tag title to the Steiners at a TV taping on November 1st. Here, they're not announced as the champions, and they don't carry the belts, but also the announcers don't say anything about the title change, so they kind of take the middle ground approach. Where do you fall on this? In 1989, are you uh, shoot titles, or are you, uh, you know, the title change doesn't exist until it airs on TV type of guy? See, this is so complicated because now those people who went to the house show are watching the show on cable. So they'll be like, wait a minute, we the free birds lose the belts. What the fuck is this about? So like I get the confusion, but honestly, I would have just had him keep holding the belts because if you haven't aired Jim Ross even comes out and said like, oh, and they had another match on TV that we'll be showing you on Saturday. He basically comes right out and says this match. It's a title challenge. Yeah. Yeah. so, So like, okay. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that there is a right answer to that. Like in Japan, it would be a scandal if someone came out with a title belt that they had actually oh, lost, yeah. right? Like you'd be disgraced yeah. and have brought shame upon your family name and whatever, right? Yeah. Why are you like exposing the business like this? Like even though everyone knows it's fake, like why are you rubbing it in people's exactly. Faces? Uh, there's a deafening Freebirds suck chant, which is very different from the yep. pops they've been getting on all the other shows this year. So real quick, too. So they come out and for like the first 30 seconds of the broadcast after like the Funkin' Flare promos, it's just the Freebirds standing on top of the set posing for like 30 seconds without moving. I don't yeah. know if they didn't get the cue to actually do their entrance. It takes them like four minutes to get to the ring. Which is about as long as this match is, because we get five minutes of, of uneventful action and then a cheap DQ when Animal shoves the ref and throws Garvin over the top rope. Whatever. Not much to that. Yeah. It's very, like, the Freebird should be a 30-second match and everyone knows it. So it's very funny that they even got five minutes out of it. Then JR interviews Terry Funk, who promises he'll make Flair quit tonight. He also pledges if Flair makes him quit, he'll shake his hand like a man. Yep. Uh, we come back from commercial for a very weird segment where JR interviews Bill After, the editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. He presents the most the award for most popular wrestler to Sting, and then he announces Flair as the wrestler of the decade. So I don't actually hate this. I remember seeing a lot of hate for it. <coughs> I think that's kind of cool to like give Sting an award like that. I think it's very funny that Sting gets his award and then it's immediately like, all right, Sting, but stand off to the side because this way better person's going to get an award for something way cooler now. Yeah. 
And in defense of this, Pro Wrestling Illustrated always keeps kayfabe. Yes. Also, back in the day, Pro Wrestling Illustrated was a big deal to wrestling fans because it's one of the few ways that you could actually find out what was going on nationally. Like, this would have felt like a big deal. Yeah. Even like, I became a fan. Not a rag sheet, brother. I genuinely remember going to the like, the grocery store in like 95, 96 and buying PWI and being like, who the fuck are all these people? Yeah, the full color photos. It was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, back from commercial, we hear from a woman in a pre-tape from her hotel room. She promises a big surprise for Rick Steiner tonight. It occurred to me while I was watching this that I don't think I've ever heard her voice before. No, I okay. didn't think she talked. Yeah, she just genuinely never talked. That was part of her gimmick is that she just never, ever said anything. So for her to cut this promo, granted, it's not a great promo. Maybe that's why she didn't talk very much. But here she is looking gorgeous and actually cutting a promo. And yeah. I was like, what the? Where was this? Yeah, in like the Monday Night Wars era when she was around, she was always silent on screen. Yeah. I also wanted to say her doing this stuff with Doom it's a bummer that Doom gets completely jobbed out and her part in it ends, because I think this stuff yeah. kicks ass. I think she's incredible so, with this. Way better manager for them than Teddy Long. And they're building the whole gimmick around her. Yeah. Like, she gets all these dudes with her when they come out, and, like, I think that's awesome. I think that's an incredible idea. Then we've got Doom against Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert. Um Surprisingly, the overmatched face team actually controls the early portions of the match. And then Reed cuts off Gilbert and him and Simmons beat the shit out of him. This genuinely should have been like a 30 seconds squash. Yes. It is funny that Rich and Gilbert were getting pushed at the beginning of our coverage of all this. And like the booking team has shifted such that Eddie Gilbert's a jobber now. Yeah, Eddie Gilbert got kicked off the booking committee is what happened. And suddenly, he's not in the main events. He's the jobber everyone knows that he yeah, is. He's also not Sting's buddy anymore. That's weird. Funny how that works. Um, Doom get the win when they hit a heart attack from the top rope. That was awesome. That's a great move. Doom and kick then, ass. Can I just say that? Doom's fucking awesome. And I think Masked Doom was better than Unmasked Doom. I loved the mystery of who they were here and just how, like, they just look like comic book villains here. My favorite part is that, like, at the beginning of the match, Woman is, like, hyping them up. And you can tell that Ron Simmons is way more into this gimmick than Reed is because he's, like, doing, like, yeah, go beat their ass. We're going to do this. And Butch Reed just kind of. Room service. Reed's like, this is just just a paycheck, man. Then we've got Jim Cornette's Louisville Slugger interview segments with segment with the Steiners. This is mostly notable for this being where the uh, Fra- Scott Steiner's Frankenstein move is given its name. I never knew that the premise behind the Frankensteiner was that Rick was watching a scary movie one day and was like, yeah. Frankenstein, Frankensteiner. <laughs> this Rick Steiner is... Um, let's say a simple boy gimmick is not good. Not great. How long does this go for? I don't know. I feel like it's definitely de-emphasized as we get into the nineties, which is good. Cause it's just not necessary. Especially now that Scott's here for Scott to be the smart one of the brothers is weird as shit. (laughs) Oh, and then we've got the dynamic dudes against the midnight express. 
The story here is that Cornette has started managing the dudes and Eaton and Lane don't like it. Cornette is here at ringside for the match, but he's staying in a neutral corner. I also, I want to give a quick shout out. We've never on this podcast ever said a nice thing about Johnny Ace (laughs) ever in the history of it. And I think that that's mostly going to continue. However, he actually rides the fucking skateboard to the ring here. Bless him for that. You always hear he couldn't ride the skateboard, but he did it here. He fucking did it. He like does that thing where you kick the back of the skateboard and it pops up into yeah. your hand. And I was like, look who's been practicing. Good for you. Uh, the Midnight get control. Uh, the crowd is entirely behind the Midnight Express, even though they're supposed to be the heels. Yep. Uh, Midnight go for the rocket launcher, but Ace gets his knees up and he tags in Douglas. Cornette then jumps in the ring behind the referee's back and just nails Douglas with the tennis racket. Swerve! Oh, man. I'm glad that they did this because, like, look, they're trying to make the dynamic dudes work. And, like, putting them with the Midnights with Cornette as a reunited heel team, on paper, it seems like a good yeah. idea. It's not going to work, but it seems yeah. like a good idea. They're just, too, they're too lame. They pro- the dudes probably got cheered in the South, but anytime they went north of the Mason-Dixon line, the crowd is too smarky for that. I also feel like already by this point, Johnny Ace has given this gimmick everything. Like, he's like, fuck it, this is yeah, my gimmick. Shane I'm going to do it to it. Shane is checked out, not trying, doesn't care. No, he he looks, like, a looks like a right-wing Republican with that haircut. That's the thing. He should be in, like, the fucking varsity <laughs> club or some shit. Uh, not a great match, but I like the I like the angle with Cornette turning heel, and the Midnights needed, they needed to go back heel. The babyface time had run its course. There's just nothing for them as faces. They can't cut a promo. They don't look good. Like, you need to be a heel team. That's where it is. Next up, we got Steve Williams against the Super Destroyer. The Super Destroyer is Jack Victory with yet another mask gimmick. This year, he's been the Russian assassin, the blackmailer, the terrorist, and now the Super Destroyer. Well, I guess this is the first one that you couldn't go to prison for being, so I guess it's legal to be a Super Destroyer. (laughs) Norman the Lunatic comes out dressed as Santa Claus. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Did he just sign here or has he been here for a while? Norman's been around for a few. I mean, Norman's been around long enough that he's turning babyface. He was originally a villainous escaped mental asylum patient. Sure. It's just funny that they're going to like look at Norman and be like, what if we just gave you Rick's gimmick and just did that? (laughs) Uh, Williams gets the win with a running power slam in just over a minute. Yep, it's about right. Um, then we've got the Steiner brothers against the skyscrapers. Uh, Rick comes through the crowd with a tray of popcorn that he stole from one of the vendors. Give some sure. to Gary Michael Capata. <laughs> there you go. Rick hits an enormous ger- German suplex on Dan Spivey. That was very impressive. Holy shit. Yeah. They're just throwing these fuckers around, man. Uh, Scott tags in and he hits a Frankensteiner on Spivey and then a backflip slam on Sid, which is unreal. 
like, first of all, it's amazing to see anybody doing moves like this to Sid at all, because like Sid's taken maybe five bumps like this in his whole career, and he takes two of them here. After six minutes, Doom runs in and we get a DQ. Um, Sid never tagged in here. I don't know if his ribs are hurt yet, but he ends up missing Starcade with a rib injury. They replace the skyscrapers in the tournament with the wild Samoa with the Samoan SWAT team. And the Samoans end up getting the push that I think they were intending to give the skyscrapers in that tournament. If you have to do that tournament and like the one for the world title doesn't make any fucking sense at all. And it's not actually even for the world title, but the tag team one is pretty interesting, but what you need to get out of that tournament is that like the skyscrapers are the team of the future or It's got to be the Steiners and the Skyscrapers because you're not pushing Doom and the Road Warriors going forward. It's got to be the plan. It's just I a can't... way for the Skyscrapers to beat the World Warriors without pinning them clean. I can't remember. Do the Steiners or the Road Warriors win? I think the Steiners win. I can't yeah, remember. Road... It comes it's down to those. One two. of them beats the other, but then the team who loses that match wins the tournament. I can't remember yeah. which way they went with that. But at the end of the day, like, and the Road Warriors aren't going to be here for very much longer, and that's not a huge surprise. But, like, you've got something in the Skyscrapers. You've got something in the Steiners. you got to start building to that mega match. And it's not really <coughs> on the horizon at all. <sighs> Rick threatens woman, but a gigantic man runs in to protect her. Um I believe this is Tyler Maine, who later became yes. an actor. He played Sabretooth in the original X-Men movie and Michael Myers in the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. Yeah, he played Bane in, like, one of the Batmans, too, I want to say. No, I thought that was the ultimate solution. Yes, that, that was the ultimate solution. It turned out, no, it wasn't the ultimate solution. But, yes, this is Tyler Maine. He looks fucking awesome. Oh, so like, this is interesting. Yeah. I think they called him Nitron. Yeah. The idea of like him and Doom being woman stable of monsters is yeah. a fucking great idea. Uh, the Road Warriors then hit the ring, too. And we got Pandemonium as all team. Uh, all four teams are brawling. That's a hot angle. Hell yeah. I loved it. We come back from commercial for an interview with uh, the Steiners and the Road Warriors. They say that they respect each other, but they'll fight each other at Starcade in the tournament. Which is, I guess, fine. Yeah. You know, you're not going to turn either of them heel. It's going to have to be a babyface respect match. Yeah. Next up, for the U.S. title, we got Lex Luger defending against Brian Pillman. Uh, rematch from Halloween Havoc in a match that I'm always happy to see. I think these guys bring out the best in each other. It's incredible that before this season, I wasn't even really aware that these two people had ever wrestled each other. And now I'm coming out of this being like, this might be the best United States Championship feud I've ever seen. And it's just crazy how this is the best singles push Brian Pillman ever got in WCW. After this, he is strictly a mid-carder. Yeah, you would think coming out of this that this should be like, like coming. If they do this exact thing at Starcade without the sting running out at the end part, like this is a star-making performance for Pillman. 
Yeah, he gets to wrestle Flair on TV in early 90, and it does a gigantic rating. I think it does like a 4.0 on either main event or world championship wrestling. And then Ole gets the book, and Ole just thinks he's too small and bounces him down to the undercard. That's the thing. Like, it's so clear that he's got it. But, like, yeah. nope, he's a junior heavyweight for the rest of his run. He could whoop most of the guys on this roster. Like, this guy's a badass. This guy was an All-American in college. I know he's 5'10". Like, literally. But 5'10's not that fucking small. No, and that's, le- you know, he was a defensive lineman. It's leverage. It's how- that can be- Being short can be helpful in, am- in real wrestling, too. It's just, and that's the story. He's your mighty mouse. Like, yes, he's going to fight monsters. He's going to fight Sid. He's going to fight all these guys. And that's going to be the plot of all of them is how can this guy overcome because he's the greatest athlete you've ever seen. Pillman is a step ahead early as he's using his quickness. He hits a missile drop kick from the top. He goes after Luger's arm and wraps it around the ring post, then slams it on the guardrail. Luger turns the tide when he runs Pillman into the corner and hits a back suplex, and then a big power slam from Luger. He signals he's going to rack him, but Pillman rolls him up from behind for a two count. Pillman, with a backdrop as he goes up to the top rope, he hits the crossbody, but he knocks down referee Nick Patrick in the process. Pillman gets an Oklahoma roll, and he's got the pin, but there's no referee to make the count. Luger then gets a chair and smashes Pillman over the head with it. Patrick recovers to make the count. Luger gets the win to end a very good match. I loved that. Absolutely. Just dynamite. Luger. So good. I can't say. Like, this might be the best year entering of his career. Yeah. He is on fire. Yeah, when he got hot in, like, you know, 96, 97 WCW, I don't feel like he was having great matches. I just think the crowd was really into him because he was so impressive and he was the only guy who got to beat up the NWO. Here, he's just having great matches all year. It's crazy to say that about Lex Luger. Yeah, and obviously he gets into his accident and he gets kind of too big to be able to wrestle well when he goes to WWE. And then, like, his body kind of falls apart in the late 90s. So it's not a huge surprise. It's just amazing to see what he was at the peak of his powers, man. He's incredible. Yeah. Uh, the book Luke, on him has always been that he was just a big, muscly piece of shit that only Flair could carry. It's just not true. No, and this is just the point in his career where he's only been wrestling, you know, four years or something like that. But he's experienced enough now that he gets it. And it, like you said, yeah. it's before he has his injuries and loses his confidence and his body starts to break down and all that. But yeah, this is him pretty much at the peak of his powers. Yep. You understand why Hurd wanted to put the belt on him. Yeah, it's completely understandable. This Luger with the belt, absolute A+. Plus. Uh, Luger takes liberties and hits Pillman with a chair after the match. He then puts him in the torture rack until Sting runs down. Luger gets on the mic, says he's been waiting for Sting um, to have the guts to come confront him face to face. Sting says they used to be friends, but Luger is turned into an arrogant snothead and smacks him. Sure. (laughs) Everybody wanted to smack Lux Luger. 
as much as I would have wanted to see Sting versus Muda at that hypothetical Starcade, doing Luger versus Sting there for the U.S. title, that's a hell of a sub-main event. Yeah. Uh, we get an interview with Funk. He says the chips are down. There's no more excuses. Someone is going to quit in front of the whole world. And if he loses, he says he'll never wrestle again. And then we do an interview with Flair, and I'm pretty sure he said he would retire if he lost, which a little late to be trying to slip that one in here. Yeah, that is a weird thing to do. Yeah. All right, main event time. It's the I Quit match, Ric Flair versus Terry Funk. If you were a fan of the NWA in this era, your ass was on the couch watching this on TV Live when it happened. Like, holy shit, to get this on free TV is absolutely stunning. Oh, man. Um, man, would this be, I mean, bigger, I guess, is this a bigger, this is a hotter match than Flair versus Steamboat was at the Clash of the Champions in New Orleans. Yeah, that's the thing, is that, like, retroactively, we look at Steamboat Flair and we're like, wow, that's one of the greatest matches of all time. Of course, it's so good. But at the time, that's not the kind of thing people were looking for from their wrestling matches, especially NWA fans. This is what you're we were looking for a mega hot storyline something yeah. on the line and a finish you couldn't possibly call neither of these men are gonna quit they're both no. fucking insane and they're gonna beat the shit out of each other Oof. all right funk comes out first he's accompanied by gary hart and two gunfighters with revolvers this kicks ass. Yeah, and that music that they've got him coming out to, which sounds like this is literally like his last gunfight before he's yeah. put down by the sheriff. This kicks ass, man. It is re- it's reminiscent of uh, the theme from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's just perfect. Um, Flair comes out second. He's a babyface, so he's only got four hooches with him this time. Just a, a modest amount. You can't yeah. get none or he wouldn't be Flair, but, nah. you know, a modest amount. Not coming out with 40, not rubbing our face in it this time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Flair almost immediately hits a big chop that knocks Funk to the floor. Then Funk just kind of jumps over the railing in frustration, which I loved. He just has a way of turning small moments into yeah. like character moments, you know? I I mean I I want to go back and watch some of the old school Terry Funk f- stuff from the 70s but of the Terry Funk I've seen this is my favorite. I love this version of him. It's just him and like it's weird that like sit, that Luger at the peak of his powers is like 28 but like yeah. Funk at the peak of his powers is like 45 but this is just like he has such command of He has the crowd in the palm of his hands. Every little thing he does is a character moment. He just gets it. He just, and he's got this energy where you just know he could go off anytime. Yeah. Even when he's like doing regular wrestling, you just feel like at any moment, he's just going to like bust out and start carving you up with a knife. Like it's like, it's incredible. They trade big punches and chops. I love that. There's not been a single wrestling hold in this match so far. They're just here to kill each other. They're not here to do fucking headlocks and arm drags and arm ringers and all that bullshit. Same thing. Same thing about Swerve and Hangman. Like there was no wrestling in that match. They just killed each other. Um, Funk gets on the mic. He demands that Flair quit. Flair doesn't respond. 
They fight back to the floor where Flair gets the advantage. He gets on the mic and demands that Funk quit. Funk tells him to go to hell. Funk turns the tide. He tells Flair to quit or he's going to break his neck. Flair refuses. Funk traps his head between his leg and starts slapping his back. Slapped it. These were some loud slaps. Yeah, these are these aren't like good job, buddy. Way yeah. to go with the job today. No, these are you literally see like the flesh on his back rippling. Funk with the pile driver on Flair. Flair refuses to quit. They go back to the floor. Punk pile drives Flair in the aisle. This is a hockey arena, so it's boards over an ice rink on the floor. That's rough. Yeah, like, just with the physics of that, the heat transfer, like, those boards have got to be rock hard. Yeah, this is, ooh, that's stiff. Man, I didn't think about this. I love the idea of him taking one of the boards out and pile driving him on the ice. That's what I'm saying. I was just having that thought, and I'm like, I don't actually know how hard that would have been. Maybe that's that might be a good thing to say. Yeah. But that's the coolest shit I could possibly imagine. Just rip them up, and there's ice down there. Funk then body slams Flair onto a table. Flair finally fires up, drops Funk on the railing with an atomic drop. He starts working Funk's legs. Funk tries to run, but Flair catches up to him. He hits that great knee breaker where he gets him all the way up in the air and slams his leg down on his knee. They go back to the ring. Flair sets up for the figure four, but Funk blocks it. Flair suplexes Funk on the apron. Flair locks in the figure four as the crowd roars, and Funk quits. Flair gets the win to end this incredible match and this incredible feud. What a battle. Just all the intensity you could ever want out of them. And, like, I honestly would not have expected, like, a real finish to this. So getting, like, the satisfaction of getting, like, the whole real match on TV... What an incredible moment. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Uh, Gary Hart jumps in the ring. He berates Funk. Funk then follows through on his pledge to shake Flair's hand as he has to crawl over to him because he can't stand up. And here's the thing. Making Terry Funk like leave the company after this is so stupid because what a gigantic baby yes! face making moment this is. Flair and Funk should have been teaming after this. Perfect. It's so reminiscent of Savage getting, you know, Savage turning babyface when he lost the retirement match to Warrior at WrestleMania 7. You can literally do the thing that Michaels did when, with Hogan where you just like, after you shake his hand, just be like, I just had to know if I yeah. could do it against the best. I'm no, sorry. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't do it. You're the best. Heart attacks later, Funk. Go yeah. ahead. Not just saying, and then later somebody attacks Flair and then Funk comes to his rescue because he respects him so much. That's just so easy. Heart attacks Funk and Flair beats Heart up. Then Muda and the Dragon Master show up and they beat up Flair. Have to confess, I don't know who the Dragon Master is. I hope that's not Stump Steve. I have no fucking idea who the Dragon Master is. I didn't even know that that's who that was. Let me uh, Google who is the Dragon yeah, Master. Yeah, who's the Dragon Master? Uh, Sakurada? Kendo Nagasaki? 
Interesting. Okay, so he's for stuck. you. He, he fucking sucks. He's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> he was a sumo, it looks like. I, I early in life in like the late 60s, 60s. early 70s, yeah. he was. No, this guy fucking blows. Like literally, he hadn't even been really wrestling anywhere. I mean, he's been in NWA for ages. He's like literally been like a jobber for this company for 10 years. Sting makes the save. Luger shows up. He hits Sting with a chair. And Flair and Luger go at it. Muda hits Flair with a chair. And we go off the air. Good brawl then. The show. Hot angle. Sets up the tournament for Starcade. well. Really strong clash of the champions there. I think one of the best they ever did. Absolutely. This is, like I said, I think this might be the best television program I've ever seen for WCW. And we've covered a bunch of the big ones. I just, from top to bottom, amazing show. Absolutely loved it. Loved the main event. And speaking of main event, it's time for Stump Steve. No! You made it out, but you don't get to. All right. All right, Steve, here we go with Stump Steve, the trivia question of the day. There were 35 total clashes of the champions going all the way until 1997. On those clash of champions, the world championship was defended in 12 of them. Oh, my God. I want you to tell me how many of those 12 World Championship matches involved Ric Flair. Oh, God. Um, A lot of them, I'll have to say. Absolutely, yes. Um, Well, Clash of the Champions 1 was Flair versus Sting for the title. That's correct. I'll even tell you the years of the title matches, if that helps. Okay, yeah. The next one is 88. 80. Oh, wait, no, no, that's, hold on. That's, that's a U.S. title match. My bad. My okay. Bad. No, the next one is all. Um, Flair wrestled JYD at Clash of the Champions Coastal Crush in 1990. That is the next one. And then the next one after that is September of that same year. Um, what's going on in September of 90? Oh, that's Sting versus the Black Scorpion? That's correct. So it did not involve Next one Flair. A- Next one after that, January 30th, 1991, Dixie Dynamite. January 91, uh, Flair versus Bobby Eaton? That is not Flair versus Bobby Eaton. They wrestled However, another time, though. At that was June of 91 in Knoxville, okay. USA. Yes. Okay. Um, January 91. Uh, Flair wins the belt back immediately after Starcade. I'm trying to think of who Flair. I'm going to say yes, this one involves Ric Flair, but I can't think of who he wrestles here. That is correct. He faced Scott Steiner. Oh, that's a hell of a match. I don't know if I've ever seen that. Yeah. All right, when's the next one? Next one is November 19th, 1991 in Savannah, Georgia. Well, Ric Flair has departed the company by then, so he is not going to be involved in that match. That is correct. It is Lex Luger versus Rick Steiner. Yeah, that doesn't sound like as good of a match. Oh, it definitely doesn't. The next one is all the way in 1993. Man, we well, what, what, do you have a date? August 18th. 1993. Flair is back by then. I will say, yes, this is, well, let me think about that. 
Now I bet that's a Ron Simmons match. Is that your official answer there? See, this is where it gets tricky because they've brought the NWA title back and Flair has it. Now, I will say this. There are two in this year, one in August and one in November. I will tell you that he definitely is in at least one of them. Flair wrestles Vader in November before Starcade for the title. That's correct. They do a dusty yes. finish there. So this one does not involve Flair. This one is Simmons. No, Simmons doesn't have the title. Vader does. I got my years wrong here. But no, this one does not. The one in August, Flair is not in in that case. That is correct. This is Vader versus Davy Boy Smith. Oh, fuck me. Yeah. Our next one. June 23rd, 1994. That is the Flair Sting unification match where they unify um, the WCW International title and the WCW title. So that one does involve Flair. That is correct. Two months later, August 24th, 1994 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That's Hogan versus Flair for the title. So that does involve I don't know how Cedar Rapids, Iowa helped you with that. But yes, that's exactly right. That's unforgettable. Cedar Rapids is unforgettable. Okay, second to last title match. This one is August 6th, 1995 in Daytona Beach, Florida. August 6th, 95. See, Hogan's the champion here, but he was at least adjacent to Flair at this point. But I'm going to say no, I don't think Flair was in this one. That's correct. Vader, Vader versus Anderson versus Flair versus Anderson and Flair in a handicap was the main event. Yeah. Hogan versus Kamala for the title was the main Jesus event. Jesus Christ. And then finally, you are 100% correct thus far. August 15th, 1996 from Denver, Colorado. Does it have Ric Flair? Yeah, that's Hogan versus Flair for the title. And right after 100%. The you, you fucking nailed it, buddy. And I I got almost all the matches too. You sure did. All right. You did not, yeah, man. Steve. You owe me another I $10. Was, I was genuinely worried that that one was going to be too fucking hard. And maybe if I had not given you the years, it would have been. But Jesus Christ, I'm impressed. <laughs> Having the dates helped because I could figure out, like, just broadly what was going on. Was Flair the champion? Was he involved in the main event? But this is what it's like talking to Steve, ladies and gentlemen, is I'll be able to be like, so they were, they happened to be in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, sometime in the year 1996. And you'd be like, oh, obviously that's Hulk Hogan versus Kamala. Duh. <laughs> I do. I did not remember Hulk Hogan versus Kamala. <laughs> I have not seen most of these Clash of the Champions. Um, and it's just never, never really been worth my time to go watch all of them. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to go see Hulk Hogan versus Kamala either. I don't think the world ever. I mean, maybe that was a good match in 1986, but even then, I doubt it. Yeah, I don't really know, man. All right. So that's a wrap for this show. That's a wrap for this season. Um, Against all odds, I think you actually enjoyed this. Dude, when you first pitched this, Literally the only reason I wanted to do it because because 1989 Steve's version is the funniest title you've ever come up with for one of these. And at the end of this, this is the best season we've ever covered. The best wrestling maybe I've ever watched. I am in love with this year. 
This is what was so maddening about WCW was they would put on just these incredible matches, but it's it just didn't draw money. They didn't yeah. make money. They lost $10 million this year. And to me, it's the, the parallels to current AEW are so strong, where AEW so consistently puts on better matches than WWE, but it just doesn't matter because AEW just doesn't feel like a big-time promotion with big stars on the same level as WWE. And I don't feel like AEW right now has the storytelling storytelling and the storylines to keep fans engaged. Yeah. Like, we're going to come back to AEW right now, five years from now, and be like, man, look at all this great shit. Why was everyone so down on it at the time? But, like, that is what it is. The feel, the momentum meter is the most important thing in wrestling, and it's the most underestimated time in and time out. All that matters is whether or not you are perceived to have momentum or not. And at this point, neither AEW nor Jim Crockett Promotions did. Yeah, it's just like the WWF had Hulk Hogan, and the WWF, you know, did their shows in arenas with 10,000 people that made them all seem like gigantic events, whereas WSW did their TV shows in a theater with a few hundred people there. And, you know, when they would go on the road and do, you know, shows in bigger arenas, they could only draw a few thousand people. And just the perception of a big time promotion was not there. Absolutely. So, yeah. Now we're going to transition from the best of times to the worst of times. Um, going to go to a very dark place, 2000 WCW. Somehow this new season on the death of WCW will actually involve a lot of the same people who were in this season. That's fucking crazy. I know it's only like 10 years, which seems impossible because this, <laughs> this is fucking crazy for 10 years. But yeah, we're going to be dealing with Ric Flair, Terry Funk, Arn Anderson, uh, Kevin Sullivan is back as the booker in this 2000 season. It's pretty wild how much hasn't changed in 10 years. Every star they make between this show right here and that show, gone. No, it's just the same guys over that were over in 1989. Yeah, we got the Steiners. We've got Sid. Sid's in the main event in 2000. If, if you teleported someone from Night Clash of Champions 1989 to WCW 2000, they would think that those guys had never left. That this is just one unbroken chain for 10 years. And they're doing about the same size houses and about the same TV ratings. Woof. They would have yeah. been nice and comfortable for those people. <laughs> So, yeah, we are going to be covering Sold Out 2000, one of the wildest pay-per-view, like, stories behind the pay-per-view ever, where basically the entire card collapses two days before the show, and they have to just rebook the entire show on the fly with no TV to build to it, and they end up putting the world title on a guy who quits the next day. Yep. So, yeah, the long and twisted story of how things got so bad in WCW. We'll have all that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.